Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Friday, the 29th of October, brought to you by epilindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. And Liberty Shield are offering right now, using the code EPLPOD, 50% off. If you visit libertyshield.com and use the code EPLPOD at checkout, you can get 50% off. Now, the software package comes with a 48-hour no obligation free trial. There are free apps for iOS, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. British expats can access the BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, All4, Sky Go, and BT Sport. Irish expats can, off, uh, can access RTE Player, TV3, and TG Acar. American expats can access NBC Sport, ESPN, HBO, Hulu, and all American sports, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball World Series is going on now, so you might want to get on board. And obviously the MLS as well, just as if you were in America. You go region-free with Netflix, so you can change your region from the US to the UK to Canada to wherever you want and get access to an incredible amount of titles that they hold off from the rest of us. There is 365 day a year support operated by a UK based team, which is ranked the number one VPN provider by Trustpilot with a five star score for excellence. There are also har- hardware packages with a VPN router that will allow you to easily collect, connect every device in your home to VPN, perfect for protecting your online privacy. So folks, libertyshield.com EPL pod, 50% off at checkout. Change the location, access what you're geo-blocked from, and keep that data safe. Stream Match of the Day on BBC iPlayer, if you want to do that. Absolutely outstanding service, libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And lastly, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Download that Etsy app to your phone and get cracking. Right, folks. So news today, according to Mark Ogden, Manchester United have placed Brendan Rodgers ahead of Antonio Conte 
in their preferred list to replace Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Now, I've been over the reasons why I think Conte, despite being a vastly superior manager to Rodgers, is not a good fit at Manchester United. James Horncastle has a really good piece on The Athletic today about Antonio Conte. And he says they'd be mad to pass it up, the opportunity to get him. But in his piece, he lays out the reasons not to hire him. You do not have the squad. Horncastle said, close your mind, close your eyes. You can picture a Conte team, three at the back. Okay, United could play three at the back. A deep-lying playmaker. Who have they got? Who have they got that could play that role that is defensively responsible enough and good on the good enough on the ball? Nobody. Rampaging wing-backs. Who have they got? Okay, they've got Alex Tellez for the left side. Who do they have for the right side? Nobody. And a strike partnership. You point me to the strike partnership at Manchester United and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. The only partnership they maybe could develop is Rashford and Greenwood. Now, that would involve leaving out Cristiano Ronaldo, who you're paying half a million a week to. That will cause trouble. Also, neither Rashford nor Greenwood is a back-to-goal number nine, which is what Conte likes. Loriente Juventus, Mandzukic, Diego Costa, Lukaku. Wherever he's gone, he's wanted one of those. A back-to-goal number nine, who does the donkey work and gets the goals. I don't think Antonio Conte has the pieces he needs at Old Trafford. I think if he walks in the door, he immediately needs three new players. Now, look, any manager going there is going to want new players. But given how much money United have spent in recent years, and it is, is, it, it is an obscene amount under Oli, it was an obscene amount under Mourinho, and it was a pretty obscene amount under Louis van Gaal as well. They've tried to buy their way back to the top, and it hasn't worked for them. At some point, they need to pull back, and they need to try and find internal solutions. They need to try and find a manager who can use what they have. Now, I've said earlier this week, the three I would look at would be Eric Ten Hag, Lopetegui and Graham Potter. I did say I would consider Rodgers. And it would appear, based on what Mark Ogden has said today, that they're going to consider Brendan Rodgers. Now, again, Rodgers does like to play a back three, but he is mostly a back four manager and has been for most of his career. Juan Basaka, Varane, Maguire, Shaw. Okay. He likes to play a three in midfield. Ideally, he wants to play a three. A deep player 
who can be a bit of a playmaker. They don't have that. A shuttler in midfield, that is the ideal role for Fred. Someone to link the defensive midfield to the attacking midfield, keep things simple, and also win back a lot of ball. That's Fred. That is Fred's role. And an attacking midfielder, he'll have that in Bruno. He plays, or he wants to play a front three. Go Greenwood, whoever through the middle, Rashford or Sancho off the other side. They would need one player for Brendan to be really happy with the United squad, I think. Because I think he'd get by with Juan Basaka. The issue with Brendan is he's not a particularly good defensive coach. That United defence isn't particularly good. They've kept one clean sheet in the last 20 games. That was against Wolves when they got absolutely spanked and somehow fluked a 1-0 win. The fact that they're so bad defensively, despite having spent £20 on David De Gea in 2011, which Paul Tompkins, who is the expert on the transfer market and the inflation value of the market, Paul Tompkins tells me that's £89 in today's money, which would be a world record fee for a goalkeeper. Fifty million on Wan Bissaka. That's one of the three or four most expensive fullbacks ever. Forty-five million on Varane. It was good value. Eighty million on Maguire. That's a world record fee for a defender. Thirty-five million on Luke Shaw in two thousand fourteen. Paul Tompkins informs me that's about eighty-eight million in today's money. That would be a world record fee for a defender was a world record fee for a fullback at the time. They've got that, and they're still really bad defensively. Lindelof was 35 million, Delow was 12, Bailly was 28 or something along those lines, Alex Tellez was 14 or 15. It's an awful lot of money to be that bad defensively. And Brendan isn't going to improve you defensively. Now, what he will do is he'll take a lot of pressure off the defence by making you more possession-orientated. So that will help. So you could imagine they would actually have a better defensive record under Brendan than under Ollie. He'll certainly make more of the attacking players than Ollie has. And if you're Rashford, Greenwood, Sancho, Martial... Bruno Fernandes, you'd be very excited, I think, or you should be anyway, about the chance to work under Rodgers, who will give you a lot of freedom and will get the best out of you. He will find ways to get the best out of you. Uh, he may use some of them in different ways than they've been used before, but I would back Brendan to do quite well with that attack. He will need one in midfield. He'll either need a Ruben Neves type of deep playmaker who can dictate things and is solid defensively, or a Wilf Ndidi type who's, you know, that elite level ball winner. But that's one signing. And I think Brendan makes them a comfortable top four team who can maybe challenge for second or third. I don't think Brendan Rodgers is, good enough, is a good enough manager to win a Premier League title. That's my opinion. Some people will have a different opinion, but... Defensively, 
not good. End of season results, never good under pressure. And he's not a good manager in Europe. So that would be a concern as well. His record, wherever he's been in Europe, Liverpool, Celtic, Leicester, not good in Europe. But he makes more sense for them where they are than Antonio Conte does. I would say Brendan is a stepping stone manager. He's the guy you bring in to get you from point A to point B, but not necessarily to your final destination. Conte is the guy you bring in to get you from point B to point C to that destination. If you could get Rodgers for two and a half years, he would improve things at the club. He'd improve the style of play. He would improve the attack, develop some of those players. He'd obviously have some backing. I don't think he'd need massive backing, though. Nor do I think he'd necessarily demand it. Because he hasn't had it anywhere else. He didn't get huge backing at Liverpool other than the one summer where they sold Suarez. Now, he made an entire mess of that. The big issue with Rodgers, if you're bringing him in, is you have to put a strong director of football in place. And he has, he has to make decisions on transfers. Rodgers can't be given autonomy because you'll end up with Dejan Lovrens and, and Adam Lallanas and, you know, Ricky Lamberts and people like that. But he is a good manager. He is a manager who's capable of taking United forward. Could win a couple of domestic cups. Routinely have them, you know, every season top four. Second, third, maybe the odd season. Brendan would be a good appointment. I would prefer one of the other three. I've thought about this a bit more. And Ernesto Valverde, I've suggested, he's the one that Barcelona should have gone for. Now, they haven't. They've brought Sergi through, who's a really poor manager. He's now the interim manager, uh, based on having done dreadfully with their B team. And Xavi, apparently, is to be the one. I think that's a mistake from both parties, but it is what it is. Valverde would actually be a very good pick for United. He would improve them defensively. And I think he would quite like the defensive group they've got. He'll happily play a nice deep block. And he'll set them up to be a counter-attacking team. Won't always be pretty on the eye, but he gets results. He won back-to-back league titles with Barcelona when Real Madrid were a better team than them. So he can get results. Admittedly, he did have Lionel Messi, which helps. But Valverde would make sense for United as someone to come in, stabilise, be a proper gnarly, gnarly bastard who doesn't care what the outsiders think. He'll galvanise the group. He won't stand for nonsense. He will put Pogba on the bench. He will not care about his reputation. I think he'd play a 4-3-3 with Cristiano through the middle. Now, he often played a 4-4-2 at Barcelona. Sometimes he played a 4-5-1, which is, you know, it's just a defensive 4-3-3. But in a 4-4-2, he made things work for Barca. United can't really play a 4-4-2 unless the front two are Ronaldo and Bruno. Now, he could do that and play Bruno just off Ronaldo and leave it at that. 
and then go with Sancho and Rashford maybe as the wide players, have Greenwood as the fifth attacker who can fill in for any of them. But don't overlook the idea of Valverde. I don't know if he'd come to England. I don't know if he speaks English. But he's a hell of a manager. And he's the type of manager that will work with what he's given. So, yes, they don't have good options in midfield. But he, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he stuck Lindelof in as a holding midfielder and went Lindelof and Fred and just tried to create a platform and tried to create a shield in front of the centre-backs and then sprung counter-attacks. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Maybe even a Bruno Lindelof Fred. Now, I don't know if Lindelof would be a, a good holding midfielder. He's got decent positional sense. He's a good passer of the ball. I don't know if he'd be any good in the role. But it wouldn't surprise me if he tried it. I'm not saying he'd go with it and stick with it, but he will look for solutions. I think United needs someone who'll look for solutions. I've seen people say Conte finds solutions. I don't think he does. Conte forces the squad to bend to his will. He doesn't really bend his ideas to the squad. That's why Conte is an elite level manager. He walks in and he immediately makes things his way. Jurgen Klopp does the same. Guardiola does the same. Takes him a bit of time. Would take Conte time. But that's what separates them. The, the second tier of managers, the likes of Valverde, the likes of Allegri, you can parachute them into most clubs and they'll find solutions. They may not win at every club, but they'll find solutions and they'll make you a good team. Klopp, Guardiola, Conte, Simeone, they'll make you a great team. Speaking of Simeone, this really annoyed me yesterday. So... I get that Diego Simeone's preferred style of play is not for everybody. I do. I fully understand that not everybody is a fan of defensive football. Not everyone's a fan of him as a person. The theatrics, the the pouting, the rage. It's not for everyone. It's not for everyone at all. He was like this as a player as well, though, remember. He was a really needly player. And he would set out to upset people. And if he could get in your head, that was half the battle. He got in David Beckham's head in 98, and Beckham ended up getting himself sent off. And that contributed massively to Argentina winning the game. Made Simeone a pariah in England. He didn't care. His team had won. Why would he care? Why would he care what people in a different country thought of him? In his mind, the only people that matter to him, outside of his friends and family, obviously, are the people that employ him at Atletico Madrid, the players who play for him at Atletico Madrid, and he's not all that bothered about upsetting them either. And most importantly, the fans of Atletico Madrid. As long as they are happy with him, He's doing his job. And they love him. They adore him. And you look at the job he's done there. Two La Liga titles. 
two Europa Leagues, a Copa del Rey, and two Champions League finals. With Atletico Madrid, not Real, not Barca. The job he has done there is sensational. And he has had to rebuild that team multiple times. He, he inherited an aging team, rebuilt it, then lost a massive amount of that team in one summer. You tell me another manager who could go into a season having lost your captain and the leader of your defence, Diego Godin who had been vital to everything you've done, as well as Felipe Luiz and Juan Fran, your two first-choice central defender, uh, fullbacks. So three-quarters of your defence gone. The guy you have long tagged as the replacement for Godin, Lucas Hernandez, he gets sold out from under you as well. The guy you've planned to build your next great midfield with. Rodri. He gets sold out from underneath you. And then to compound it. Your best attacker. Your primary goal scorer. Antoine Griezmann. He gets sold out from under you as well. You tell me a manager. Who could lose. At the time, Rodri was probably the third best midfielder after Saul and Koke, but still a starter, still a regular starter, a key piece with a massive future. Three quarters of your defence, your primary goal scorer, a nailed-on starting midfielder, and the guy you thought was the future of your defence at centre-back. How many managers could, could lose all of that in one go? Five guaranteed starters, and another who played a fair bit in one go. And you look at what they did to replace those players. They brought, brought in Marcus Lauriente, an inconsistent but promising player from Real Madrid. They brought in Felipe, a mediocre defender. Mario Hermoso, a talented defender, but inconsistent. Kieran Trippier, an inconsistent right-back. Renan Lodi, a young left-back with a lot of improving to do. And Joe Felix, a kid. So you lose all that, all those starters, all the experience that comes with, with that defensive line. Juan Fran, Felipe Luiz and Godin. Three guys who worked in perfect harmony. Three guys that knew each other inside out, knew exactly what the other was going to do. You lose all of that. You lose that leadership, that synergy. You lose it all in one summer. Every phase of your team changes. Your defense is now massively changed. You've got a change in midfield. Now, luckily enough, you've got Thomas Partey to bring in. So yeah, that helps. And your attack has to change. You tell me a manager that can lose that and still finish third in a competitive league. A very competitive league. And, you know, it's not just the fact that he's won two titles. He finished third in 1920, second in 1819, second 
1718, third in 1617, third in 1516, third in 1415, won it obviously in 1314, third in 2012 13, and fifth the year he took over. He took over just at Christmas time, and they were largely dreadful when he took over. He took over after 17 games that season. They sat 10th in the league. And he got them to 5th. And he won the Europa League. In a full season, he's never finished below 3rd. Despite really good Sevilla teams, really good Real Sociedad teams. He's finished above Real or Barca a bunch of times. Above both of them twice. And this is during an era where Barcelona had Messi, where Real Madrid won four Champions Leagues, and yet he's still finishing above them in the league multiple times. And there are people trying to diminish this man as a coach. Oh, but when his team plays more attacking football, they're not as good defensively. That's the same for every team. Every team, when they play more attacking, they become more open defensively. I saw a claim that Atletico Madrid are not good defensively this year. Now, admittedly, they're not as good as they have been in years past. But there are still only three clubs in, in La Liga with a better defensive record through 10 games. Sevilla, who have... Jules Kunde, one of the top six or seven best centre-backs in the world. Real Sociedad, who've been outstanding this season. They've only conceded one goal less. An athletic club, managed by Marcelino, an uber-defensive manager. So, you moaned when Simeone played defensive football. You moaned when they were conceding 29 goals in 14-15. In 15-16, they conceded 18 goals. 18 goals in a 38-game season. In La Liga. 27 goals in 16-17. 22 goals in 17-18. In 18-19, it was 29. In 19-20, it was 27. Last season... It was 25. Should point out, in his entire time there, he's always had the best or second best defensive record. The moaning at that point was, oh, they don't score enough goals. And then they start to score more goals. Oh, they're open at the back. Which do you want? Because there is no team that's going to be amazing going forward and blow the opposition away. and incredibly tight at the back. Now, they've had some bad luck this season. A couple of those goals you can mark down as flukes. There's been a couple of questionable penalties against them. They drew 2-2 with Levante last night. Correa was about three yards onside and was flagged offside. He was through to win the game for them. That doesn't get mentioned, though. No, no, Simeone's failures, failures uh, were highlighted. This is a time when I see other people 
claiming Hamzy Flick is a top three or four manager in the world. Hamzy Flick, who had two seasons at Bayern Munich, not even, a season and three quarters. A Champions League. He won a Champions League with a massive asterisk next to it because the knockout stages were one leg. They were all played on neutral venue. There was no home and away. And that had been Bayern's Achilles heel, was having to go and play away games. Hansi Flick managed Bayern at a time when Bayern win the Bundesliga just by turning up. They don't even have to be good. They just turn up and they win the Bundesliga. Teams roll over for them most weeks. And he gets credit because his team had incredible balance. How would it not have? Who are you playing against? Dortmund, under Lucien Favre, were so inconsistent they sacked Favre. Nagelsmann never fully figured things out at Leipzig because he was too busy trying to be the cleverest guy in the room. And every other club had managerial chopping and changing. Who was ever going to challenge them? Seriously. Who was going to challenge them? Look at the team he inherited. Niko Kovac won the title and got sacked. Winning the title with Bayern is not an achievement. Winning the Champions League, it is an achievement, but that one comes with a big old asterisk on it. Hansi Flick managed at Hoffenheim for half of the 2000s, before Hoffenheim became any good. They were a lower league team. And he didn't do very well there. 45% win ratio. Hamzy Flick is a good manager, but there's nothing yet that suggests he's a great manager. What he did there is less impressive than what Louis Enrique did at Barcelona. And Louis Enrique is good. Just about good. But what he did was more impressive than what Hamzy Flick did. And people want to put Hamzy Flick in the top three or four managers in the world and try and disparage Diego Simeone who for a decade has gone to war with Real Madrid and Barcelona as those two clubs spent themselves into oblivion. He operated on a budget that resembled Everton's. Look at his annual net spend. Look at the players that they sold from underneath them. Look at the wage bill. Compare their wage bill to Barcelona and Real Madrid, your eyes will pop out of your head. He basically took Everton and won two La Liga titles, two Europa Leagues, and got to the Champions League final twice. With a team that had had more relegations than titles in the previous 25, 30 years, With a club that was notoriously mismanaged before he got there. 
at a club where managers lasting a year was seen as pretty good job. Just think about this for a second. Simeone has been an Atletico. It'll be 10 years in December. Okay. In the 10 years prior to his arrival, Luis Aragonas, Gregorio Manzano, Cesar Ferrando, Carlos Bianca, Jose Murcia, Javier Aguirre, Abel Rossini, Santi Denia, Kike Sanchez Flores, and Manzano again, had all been employed as manager. Some of them as caretakers, most of them as permanent managers. Santa Dinia only there for a day. A day. <laughs> he was caretaker for a day. The poor fellow. The rest of them all had at least six months. All of them had at least six months. That chaos. And be before that, it was worse. Go and look at how many managers they had through the 90s. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm only up to 94, by the way. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. 18 managers in the 90s. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12, 13, 14 managers in the 2000s. No, sorry, I'm wrong. 13 managers in the 2000s. 13 different managers. They had two in the first year and a half of the last decade, the 2010s. They've had one since. Like, people just don't understand how chaotic that club has been through their history. They have been a train wreck for years and years and years. And what he's done there is, it's unthinkable. Ten years at Atletico Madrid is the equivalent of 30 years at an English club. Genuinely. That's how quickly they go through managers. That's how unstable the club has been. And he has brought them, without doubt, the greatest era they've ever seen. Now, some would argue that, you know, between 65 and 78, they won four league titles. But... Even then, in that 13-year period, two, four, six, seven managers. They just, they've never had this kind of stability and this kind of sustained success on all fronts. Nobody wants to draw them in the Champions League. If they drop into the Europa League, they'll be favoured to win that. They're a horrible team to play against. He gets the very best out of absolutely everybody. Look at his current team. 
Jan O'Black, under his watch, has become one of the best goalkeepers ever. Kieran Trippier has gone from being a fairly average fullback to quite a good fullback. Renan Lodi has improved. Jose Jimenez has improved massively since he joined when he was a kid. Now, if it wasn't for injuries, Jose Jimenez would probably be a 70, 80 million pound centre-back. Admittedly, the others aren't great, but Stefan Savage, do you remember him in the Premier League? Under Simeone, he's actually a pretty good defender. Hermoso's decent. Felipe's a lost cause. Lost cause. That was a bad buy. But he's not in charge of transfers. He's not in charge of making final decisions on transfers. He doesn't have that power at Atletico Madrid. He gives suggestions. He tells them what he's looking for. But he wouldn't have bought him. He wouldn't have bought Felipe. Not a hope. Not a hope. What Diego Simeone has done at Atletico Madrid is mind-blowing if you know anything about the history of that club. Just take 10 minutes and go and read about Atletico Madrid. Take another three minutes and scan the list of Atletico Madrid managers. And look at how quickly they chew up and spit out managers. It is absolutely amazing how quickly they burn through managers. There's never been a club like them. Never. They're just, it's hilarious. But do, do yourself the favour. Go and read up a bit on Atletico Madrid. Read up about the ownership of Jesus Gil. And read up about him. Because he, he alone is well worth half an hour of your day. He was... Imagine Donald Trump owned your football club. Just, just consider that for a second. Imagine Donald Trump owned your football club. That's what Atletico Madrid were for many, many years. And that didn't leave when he died. When he was gone, it was just as bad for a couple of years until Simeone got there. And now they're incredibly stable. They've got a great team. They'll be in the mix to win La Liga again this year. He's trying to expand his horizons from a, you know, a stylistic point of view. And all the people that moaned for years about the style of play now want to criticise him for changing the style of play. Go and stick your head in a washing machine. I am going to take a break. When we come back, have two questions that were sent. One, uh, one we started answering yesterday from Dunno96 and another one that was sent to me today. So I will see you in a couple of minutes. Bye-bye.
Right, welcome back. So, a uh, couple of questions to get to. So the first one is from Gautam LFC. In the Premier League era, what are the five worst tactical setups managers have made in single matches that you can remember? I'm going to start with the most recent one, which is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's setup against Liverpool last weekend, where he played the same team that had played against Atalanta and gotten smacked around the place for 45 minutes, where he told them to press from the front after picking Cristiano Ronaldo the worst pressing forward in Europe as his number nine. So I think that's one of them. Also, you cannot press in a back four if Harry Maguire is in your back four. You cannot. When you press, you're making the field smaller. You're compressing the playing area. You're pushing your defence into where the midfield would often stand. You're pushing the midfield into the half spaces, into that in-between-the-lines in kind of area. And you're pushing your forwards right in on top of the opposition defence. You're making the pitch really small and you're making it very difficult for them to play out. If you do that with Harry Maguire and his lack of pace, you are going to get absolutely annihilated. Not even by quick players, just by, you know, relatively quick players. It doesn't need a Salah. A Firmino will run away from Maguire. Most average-paced human beings will run away from Harry Maguire. You cannot play a high line if you've got Harry Maguire in your team and you're playing a back four. You could do it in a back three because you'd still have two centre-backs there to cover for him. But that's what they will spend their day doing is covering him. But when there's two of them, that's fine. You put him in the middle and one either side to cover. When it's a two, it's very easy just to lob the ball behind him. In that space between him and the left back, but 10 yards behind him. And when the left back is Luke Shaw, not the quickest on the turn, also carrying a bit of timber. Not ideal. Not ideal at all. You saw the first Liverpool goal at the weekend. Luke Shaw having to stand five yards deeper than Maguire. To cover him. Because he's so slow. And that's a constant factor with Maguire. You watch United play week to week to week and they're rarely in a straight line defensively. Somebody is covering for Harry Maguire. If the ball is on the opposition left, the United right, Shaw is always deeper. Always deeper. If the ball is on the opposition right, the United left, Varane or Lindelof is always deeper. And the reason they're deeper and the reason Lindelof and Shaw have taken the blame regularly over the last couple of years is because they're there to cover Harry Maguire because he's so slow. So Ollie in that game absolutely won. This one 
wasn't one game necessarily. It was one decision by a manager over a couple of games that was just one of the most baffling tactical decisions I've ever seen. Louis van Gaal deciding that having spent £68 million on Angel Di Maria, one of the best wingers in Europe, he was going to play him as a wingback. As a wingback. Angel Di Maria. One of the great wingers of the last 15 years. World-class player at the time United bought him. Stuck him as a wingback. Now, I get that at Real he'd played in the midfield in a diamond and done well. And I get that he could play both wings, but you know, just because he's got versatility doesn't mean you can stick him wherever you want. Similarly, Brendan Rodgers playing Bobby Firmino on the right wing. It's a baffling decision. Brendan Rodgers features next on the list as the number three. His decision... It's late April, might have been early May, I think it's late April 2014. Liverpool are top of the table, three games left. Liverpool need seven points from their three games to secure their first league title in 24 years. Jose Mourinho announces midweek that he's going to play a weakened team. Chelsea had, must have been a Champions League semi-final or something at the time. He announces he's going to play a weaker team. He is basically gift-wrapping the draw. Chelsea come, parks the bus, weakened team. Gift-wrapping the draw. Your remaining two games are Crystal Palace, who are awful, away from home. And Newcastle, who are also poor, at home. The title is there. You can smell it. All you have to do is take the draw. But your ego takes over. And you go and you try and beat them. They don't even try. For half an hour, 40 minutes. They've got 11 men behind the ball. It's all very nice and easy for them. They're not really attacking. But you continue to push the issue. You've got Steven Gerrard as the deepest man. Two centre-backs are a yard in front of him, either side. Gerrard slips. And Demba Ba runs onto it. And what can he do when he go on and score? Now, if you just parked your ego for one game, and I get that it was Mourinho, and I get that you worked for Chelsea under Mourinho in the past and probably wanted to prove a little bit of a point, but if you parked your ego, you'd have gotten a very comfortable nil-nil draw. Very, very comfortable. Because when Gerard picked that ball up, he would have had four players behind him. And the slip wouldn't have mattered at all. But no, no. Not you. So you lose that game. 
you go to Crystal Palace a few days later and you decide to go all out attack at 3-0 up. Trying to gain back the goal difference. Because if you get six points, you're going to lose the title on goal difference. So it's going to happen. City have a better goal difference. You needed that seventh point to overcome the goal difference. So you get 3-0 up and then you decide to go all at attack. And Crystal Palace come back and score three goals because you couldn't set up a defence if your entire family's lives depended on it. So you blow that one. And then you beat Newcastle at home and you end up second. Two points and some goals behind City. All you have to do, all you have to do, is take that draw. And we're over seven years on, and I'm still not over it. All you had to do was take the draw. He gift-wrapped it. And he left it in front of your house. Midweek, I'm playing a weekend team. What he was saying to you was, don't take the piss. Let's just have a nice draw. Nothing will happen. We'll move on. We'll go do our thing. You do your thing. You go win the title. And I've got my focus elsewhere. And you blew it. Because you're an egotist. Um, so that would be three. Let me think. Um, it's tough to think of ones off the top of your head across the Premier League. I would say Dean Smith continuing to play Tyron Mings is just one that stands out to me as being very, very strange. Despite all the evidence we have that Tyron Mings isn't very good. Um, so that's one that stands out to me. I am struggling for another one. I genuinely am struggling for another one. I've only so I've got four, and the the fourth one's a bit. I mean, it, it's a bit of a stretch, in fairness, because it's only this season. Um, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. This wasn't a one game thing. This was basically a career suicide thing. Vias Boas walking into Chelsea and immediately trying to bundle Drogba, Terry and Lampard out of the team, even though even though he did it under instruction because Abramovich wanted them gone, he wanted to bring in the new blood. He should have just done it more carefully and over a shorter over a longer period of time. I think he signed a six-year contract. He had loads of time. Loads of time to do that. I'll go with that one over the Dean Smith one because I think that was just really unadvisable. And the last one, Aussie Ardiles, I can't think who they played. 
He might have done this more than once. Ozzy Ardiles came up with... To call it a tactical game plan would be a stretch. At Spurs, where he played a back four, and Jika Popescu as a defensive midfielder. Then he played Darren Anderton as a wide, like, I mean, right wing, wide right player. Nicky Barmby as a wide left player. And then was it, was it Dimitrescu? I think it was Dimitrescu and Sheringham behind Klinsman. Is that right? I think that's right. Was it the 1994-95 Tottenham team? Ozzy Ardiles, he was in charge at the start of the season. Yes, it was. It was the start of this season. And he played Popescu, who was probably better as a centre-back, best as a sweeper, brilliant, but a, a good defensive midfield player. He played him with basically 30 yards of space all around him. He played Dimitrescu and Sheringham off Klinsman with... Anderton and Barnby, like really wide, really wide. Um, magnificent stuff, like suicidal football. It's Saul Campbell, and I want to say Gary Mabbott was the other centre-back. Yeah, Justin Edinburgh was the left-back. Don't think Colin... Oh, was Saul Campbell the right-back that year? Maybe Colin Calderwood played centre-back. I can't really remember the whole thing. But that attack, it was it was the weirdest-looking thing where they would have literally a front five. It was, it was kind of like a 4-1-4-1. But there was an enormous gap between Popescu and the rest. And whenever they lost the ball, which happened quite regularly, Despite the fact that Anderton was a tremendous player, Barnby was very, very good. Uh, Dimitrescu didn't really work in the Premier League, but he was a very good player. Sheringham obviously was a great Premier League player, and, and Klinsman's Klinsman. Um, when they lost the ball and teams broke on them, Popescu was just left all alone in midfield. And... Um, no surprise, Ozzy Ardiles did not last long. Uh, replaced by Jerry Francis, who had been, I think, at QPR. Jerry Francis was actually a good manager at QPR. He had that Les Ferdinand, Kevin Gallen, Trev Sinclair. Was that Andy Peacock? Is that the other guy's name? Um, really good QPR team he had there. He was a good manager, and he, he has not managed a club in 20 years. He went Exeter for a year, Bristol Rovers for four years, QPR for three years, Tottenham for three years, QPR again for three years, and then Bristol. If he'd gone to Exeter, he would have completed a perfect symmetrical thing. It would have been quite nice. But he was a decent manager, and he hasn't managed since 2000. 2001. Oh, dear. Oh, he worked under Pulis. 
He was assistant manager to Pulis at Stoke and at Crystal Palace. He could have he could have managed a lot longer. He was a, he was a good manager. He genuinely was. Uh, did great work at QPR first time round. Anyway, don't really remember the second time, but first time around, he was really really good, really really good. They had such a fun team. They were always enjoyable to watch. Anyway, I've gone off track, as I always do. Um, I'll go with that Aussie Ardiles one. Put Aussie Ardiles... Vias Boas, the decision to just try and get all those experienced players out of the room. Brendan. Louis van Gaal playing De Maria as a wing-back. <laughs> would haunt me forever. And... Um, and Ollie, like I just it was such a bad tactical plan from Ollie that I just I think it has to be mentioned. Uh the other question we had then, so Dunno96 asked me for a one season wonder Premier League team. So this is what I've put together. In goal, I've got Asmir Begovic for the 2012-13 season. He was with Stoke, it was his Third full season there. And he was, to his credit, he was quite good that year. He has lived off that year ever since. And has somehow gone on to play for Chelsea, Bournemouth, Quarabag, AC Milan, and now Everton. He hasn't been good in nearly a decade. And yet he has maintained a, a starting spot at a number of clubs. Um, Asmir Begovic is my goalkeeper. I did think Dudek. But Dudek was actually a great goalkeeper for Feyenoord. And it was only really after that Forland thing. That it, it really did alter his confidence. But Istanbul. So he gets away with it. Right back has to be Danny Simpson. You want to talk about bang average. Bang average doesn't even begin to describe Danny Simpson. Currently plodding away for Bristol City in the championship. He was a mediocre right back at best who was part of that Leicester team that just captured the storm in the bottle in the 15-16 season and went on to win the Premier League. Uh, at left back, I've gone for Silvino. Uh, joined Arsenal from Corinthians in 99. His first season, he was outstanding. He was voted into the PFA Players Team of the Year. Really good season. The following season, he was a train wreck. Absolute train wreck. He was binned off about halfway through. Ashley Cole took over, and Arsenal got him out of the club as quickly as possible, off to South of Eagle. He somehow ended up at Barcelona and then Man City. Um, when City got a bit of money and were really excited to buy some players and were trying to sign all the old Arsenal players. Uh, Gail Clichy went there. Colo Toure went there. Adebayor went there. There was at least one other one as well. So uh, he would be the left back in this this team of miscreants. Uh, at centre back, we're going Laurent Koscielny, uh the 2012-13 edition of Laurent Koscielny. When he was voted second in Arsenal's player of the season. Um, he was just never very good. Always error prone. Lots of red cards. Lots of penalties given away. 
Couldn't defend facing his own goal at all. Really, really error-prone player. But give him credit for his 2012-2013 season. Also give him credit for the fact that Arsenal fans walked around with Murtishelny on their backs, Kostafi on their backs, trying to make out that his partnerships with Murtasacker well, the one with Murtasaka was quite good, mostly because of Murtasaka. And the one with Mustafi was a train wreck. Um, but yeah, he inspired Arsenal fans to waste their money on, on such nonsense. Next to him, the one and only Dejan the Pebble Lovren, who had half a good season, not even a full good season, half a good season for Southampton. Now, a little bit of backstory here. He was at Dinamo Zagreb. Very, very highly regarded, despite taking quite a bit of time to really establish himself at Zagreb. A couple of seasons out on loan, and he had about a season and a half with Zagreb in the first team. Goes to Leon, and immediately Leon know we've made a mistake here. He was voted in the worst team of the season three years of his three and a half years there. He blamed it all on a media campaign. It was nothing to do with the media, Dejan. It was all about you. They were actively trying to sell him for £6 million. That's what they were offering him out for, which is about the same as they paid from. They were just trying to get the money back out of him. Southampton charged in with 8.5, rising to 10. Leon were laughing laughing at the notion and sent him on down the road. So he goes to Southampton. He's in a back four with Nathaniel Klein, who's solid defensive right back. Luke Shaw, uh, the best young left back England had seen since Ashley Cole appeared on the scene. And Jose Font, a very, very good centre back. In front of him, in front of them rather, they've got Victor Wanyama, at the time, probably the best defensive midfielder in the league. And Morgan Schneiderlin, who was also a very good defensive midfielder. You want to talk about having your hand held? This guy had people propping him up everywhere. For the first four months of the season, he was quite good. The team was quite good. And they made him look better. He got injured. They were better without him. He came back and they got progressively worse. He had done well at Anfield early in the season and scored and Southampton won 1-0 in a game in which Brendan Rodgers played four centre-backs across his back line. In the return game at St Mary's, he was single-handedly to blame for two of Liverpool's three goals and played a hefty contribution to the third goal. He was appalling on the day. You'd never have bought him based on that performance. Not in a million years, unless your name is Brendan Rodgers, who brought him to Liverpool for £20 million. £20 He was a left-sided centre-back. Liverpool already had two good left-sided centre-backs in Mamadou Saku, Asako and Daniel Agard. Now, Agard had injury problems, still a good player. 
You didn't need a left-sided centre-back. You needed a right-sided centre-back. And Brendan thought that because he was right-footed, he could just move him across. And people wonder why he's not a good defensive coach. But Dejan the Pebble Lovren, half a good season, led to a £20 million move. And six years of him being shocking at Liverpool. Absolutely shocking. Cost them countless points. Contributed to losing them the title in 1819. A diabolical defender. Currently off terrifying young children in Zenit St. Petersburg with what he classes as his own brand of defending. So that's the defence. Danny Simpson, Koscielny, Lovren and Silvino. In the midfield, first pick. Danny Drinkwater has to be. The holding midfielder in this team is Danny Drinkwater. A solid championship player. Solid. That's it. One good Premier League season. The year Leicester won the title. The year N'Golo Kante carried him up and down the pitch. I don't know if Kante was responsible for Chelsea deciding to buy him, but somebody at Chelsea decided to buy him, even though in the season following the league title, he was not very good. But Chelsea decided to spend £35 million on him, and he has been god-awful since. He played 12 games in the Premier League for them in the first season, and in the subsequent four seasons, he has not played a Premier League game, he has played one game, which is in, I believe, was it the Super Cup? Was it the European Super Cup or something he played in? Either way, he has been loaned to Burnley and flopped, Villa and flopped, Kasim Pasa in Turkey, don't know anything about how he got on there, and he's currently on loan at Reading in the final season of his contract. Reading are contributing 10,000 a week to his 100 grand a week salary. 90 grand a week to go and play for somebody else. Next to him, Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba. He's had one good Premier League season. In 1819, he was genuinely quite good. United. Not so much. Finished sixth. But Paul Pogba was really good. Now, was he really good at the expense of the team? Possibly. But in his other four full Premier League seasons, poor. Poor ranging to dreadful. This season, really good first day. Really good against Leeds. Awful since. Garbage, culminating with what he put forward against Liverpool at the weekend. Uh, the other midfield spot goes to Adam Lallana. Um, had been a solid lower league player for Southampton. Comes into the Premier League, dreadful first season. Looks completely out of his depth. Second season, he actually has a good season. Credit to him. 
Um, he had Wanyama and Schneidlin doing all the dog work in midfield, and he was just allowed to run and press and do whatever he wanted. Adam Lalana was um, was quite good for Southampton this that year. You would say after Font, the two boys in midfield, and Jay Rodriguez, he was probably their fifth best player. Somehow got voted into the PFA t- team of the year, probably because he scored nine goals and people don't really count much else. And Liverpool spent £25 million on him, where he came to the club, stayed six years, and in that entire time, had three and a half good months at the start of the 16-17 season. He had a bad first year, he had a bad second year, he had a good start to the third year, then got injured around Christmas time, and then was garbage for the rest of the season. Uh, and then he was either injured or garbage for the entire rest of his spell at the club. In his last three years at Liverpool, he scored one goal. 53 appearances, one goal. A goal-scoring midfielder, we were told. Clowns. Um, in the number 10 position, I'm going for Michu, uh, who arrived from Celta Vigo. No, sorry, he arrived from Rio Vallecano. He'd been at Celta Vigo uh, in the Secunda division and he gained quite a good reputation. Went to Rio Vallecano, scored 15 goals in his first La Liga season. Michael Laudrup brought him to Swansea. Laudrup had taken over from Rodgers and b- bumped him in the league and obviously they would win the League Cup that year. And Michu was brilliant. 18 goals in the Premier League, 22 in all competitions. There was talk of... They bought him for $2 million. There was talk they were going to get $25 million for him. They had a couple of offers that summer that I, I vividly remember were in the £20 million range. And they turned them down. And then he was awful the second season. And at the end of the second season, they loaned him out to Napoli. And then let him go on a free. Let him go on a free. Ridiculous. My two up front, I'm going for two big old donkeys. Amir Zaki, uh, one season wonder with Wigan in the 08-09 season. He was there on loan from Zamalek. Zamalek wanted a fairly cheap price at the start of the year. Uh, after the year, I think they were looking for like £10 million, which was quite a bit of money back then, especially for Wigan. Uh, he went to Hull, didn't score in six appearances, didn't score in either of the next two years. And in fact, after leaving Wigan in 2009, in club games across seven seasons, he scored three goals. He was 26 when he left Wigan. And for the rest of his career, he scored three league goals. Amir Zaki, what a guy. The Turkish Alan Shearer. No, the Egyptian Alan Shearer. Um, Steve Bruce called him highly unprofessional. I remember him going to Anfield and absolutely battering. Absolutely battering Liverpool centre-backs around the place. And my final pick up front next to him. Roque Santa Cruz, 
Has to be. Has to be Rocky Santa Cruz. So Blackburn signed him. He'd been at Bayern Munich. Um, Bayern had signed him at a young age. I think he was 17 or 18. And he'd been at Bayern a long time. Uh, never really made the grade as a starter, but was a solid squad player, was a talented player. And Blackburn signed him, and he lands over, and in his first season, he scores 19 Premier League goals, 23 in all competitions. I think he was third highest scorer that year. And uh, looked really good, genuinely looked the business. Uh, he got four goals the following season, but he had a lot of injuries. And then, you remember earlier I mentioned Manchester City when they got all the money? Well, they had all the money and they spent £17.5 million for him. And off to City he went. He scored three Premier League goals his first season. Then he got loaned out for two years, once to Blackburn, once to Real Betis. And then they sold him to Malaga. He is currently playing for Olympia Asuncion, who I believe are back in his native Paraguay. Yes, they are. The club he actually started out with, the club that Bayern found him at. And to be fair, he's had a couple of good seasons there. Uh, 2018, he scored 18 goals in 42 games. 2019, he scored 28 goals in 42 games. And 2020, he scored 17 in 32 games, which is fairly impressive considering going into that run, he was 37. Talk about your Indian summer. Fair play. Get your goals, son. Right, we'll wrap up with the gossip and we're done for the week. Chelsea and Newcastle are among the Premier League clubs who've been alerted to the possibility of signing Eden Hazard in January. That is exactly the type of signing I expect Newcastle to sign. Him, Coutinho, Isco, one of them. Loads of money, mega wages, and he'll be absolutely trash. Uh, Newcastle's new owners have identified Ishmael Assar as an early target. Okay, um... Ishmael Assar and Alan St. Maxim on the wings would be really entertaining. But if you're the number nine playing with them, you're going to have frustrating days. Uh, Newcastle's hopes of signing Barcelona's Usman Dembele have received a boost <laughs> as Barca have to play Ronald Koeman 10 million. Oh, Dembele and St. Maximum on the wing. If you're the striker, just stay at home because it's going to be a horrible day. Manchester United will have to pay Ole Gunnar Solskjaer 7.5 million if they decide to sack him. Imagine he should be paying them to be there. Um, United are losing interest in appointing Antonio Conte because of how much the Italian would cost. It's not just how much the Italian would cost, it's how much the 11 lads he's going to bring with him are going to cost. It's also how much it's going to cost to get rid of Michael Carrick, Mike Phelan, and all the rest of your coaching staff. You're easily talking north of 20 million to bring them all in and get rid of who you have easily. And then Conte is going to want 12, 14 million a year. And it's probably another 4 million a year or so for the staff, maybe a bit more, probably 5, 6 million. So say say it's 6 million, that's 20 million on wages over a five-year con. It's a 100 million commitment. It's a 100 million commitment. And when it doesn't go well and you have to get rid of him, because here's the thing, Conte gets his money guaranteed. Conte's in that elite club with Mourinho, with Guardiola, with Klopp, 
who gets their contract guaranteed. Most managers, if you sack them, you only pay them until they go back to work, unless they're smart and get their money guaranteed. Moyes got his money guaranteed at United when they hired him because Ferguson hired him. So Moyes got paid for his entire tenure, even though they fired him. Villas-Boas did the same thing because Mourinho warned him, make sure you get your contract guaranteed. Chelsea were paying a £13 million buyout. They thought, OK, we'll guarantee the contract. They paid him like 40 odd million. He worked there for seven months. And Conte will do the same thing. He will get his money guaranteed. Conte was quitting Chelsea and they had to pay him. Magnificent. Uh, West Ham are understood to be in talks with Daniel Kretinsky over the potential sale of 27% of the club. Um, good to see Sky Sports claiming credit for this. It's not your story. It just isn't your story. That story came from The Athletic. They beat you to it. Sorry for your troubles. Manchester City made an approach to sign Romelu Lukaku from Interland, Inter Milan prior to his move to Chelsea, says the player's agent. That just sounds like the type of thing agents say. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has asked the Chelsea hierarchy to sign another forward in January uh, to ease pressure. Now, this is from the Transfer Window podcast. Is that Duncan Castles? I think so. Um, I think that's Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry, isn't it? Hmm. Arsenal could face competition from Barcelona in their bid to sign Raheem Sterling. Well, first of all, I, I don't imagine Raheem Sterling wants to sign for a ninth-place team. And Barca have no money. So I, I don't think either of these teams will be signing Raheem. Though, I do think it would be a great move for Raheem. Go to London, the biggest club in London. Great young players around. You can be part of something. But he's not in the timeline of what they're building. You look at, like... Ideally, moving forward, I know they've got Thomas Party, and I suppose even you have Thomas. Yeah, okay, fine. You go Thomas and Raheem are your two oldest players. Then you've got Tommy Asu and uh, Tierney. I wonder if they might look at... I've seen this Marshall fans say they'll play back three next year, but Tommy Asu and, and Tierney are not wing-backs. So, I don't know. Um, but you'll have Ben White, Saliba and Gabriel... Um, you have Saka, you have Smith-Rowe, you have Odegaard, you have Martinelli, you have you know all the other young players that are there. I still think they made a mistake selling Willock. Um, I don't know. I, Arsenal would be a good move for Raheem, but I don't know if Raheem is a good move for Arsenal. Um, the Gunners are monitoring the situation of Borussia Mönchengladbach's 24-year-old Swiss midfielder, Dennis Sicaria. It would be a really good fit next to Partey. Really good fit. They will they will outrun most teams if they can't outplay them, and they will outplay most teams. Uh, Bayern Munich midfielder Quarantine Tolisso will not extend his contract with the German club beyond next summer, and Tottenham are interested. He should have become one of the best central midfielders in Europe, but injuries just completely spoiled it for him at Bayern. He's at a contract next year. Um, when he when he was at Leon, he he was an absolute monster in midfield, like a one man wrecking crew in midfield. He had a really good first year at Bayern, seventeen eighteen. He was excellent. Following season, he played four games in all competitions. He's had a bunch of niggling injuries ever since. He's only played twenty eight games, the most he's played in a season since, and he's never been right after the injuries in that seventeen eighteen season. 
just hasn't been right. I'm oh, sorry, the 18-19 season was the one he got injured. Just has not been right at all. Ruptured cruciate, just hasn't recovered. Such a shame. Tremendous player. Um, James Ward-Prowse, the target for Newcastle. Again, this type of thing I can see them doing. Donny van de Beek and Eric Bailly are seeking assurances over the future of Manchester United. Lads. Donny van de Beek has played five minutes in the Premier League this season. And Ollie wouldn't play Eric Bailly when Harry Maguire was barely able to walk, let alone run, against Leicester. So, you know, there's, there's your assurances. Uh, let me assure you that you need to move. Chelsea are confident Danish defender Andreas Christensen will sign a new long-term contract. Uh, football insider, so we put that in the bin. Uh, he may well do anyway. Like, why wouldn't he? He's first choice now, but basically. Uh, Italy forward Lorenzo Insigne says he is focused on playing after asked about his future. I, I don't know how Napoli haven't sorted that out. Juventus have joined the race, the race to sign uh, Karim Adeyemi. Makes sense. Tottenham are opening to open to let letting Delhi Ali leave in January. I think Everton. I genuinely do. I think Everton's the club for him to go to. Chelsea are looking at trying to sign highly rated midfielder Leonardo Cardoso, who has represented both Portugal and England at youth level from West Brom before he commits to a new deal or a professional deal with the Baggies. Leave him alone. Every one of these young players that someone steals off West Brom ends up not working out. Every one of them. Now, in fairness, a lot of the ones that stay don't work out either. But still, leave him alone. Going to go to Chelsea, get lost in the shuffle, never get through to the first team, end up on 64 loans and retire at like 28 because he's burnt out because he's had to move every six months. Just say no. Uh, Liverpool have joined Manchester United and Ch Manchester United in the battle for Calvin Phillips. I love Calvin Phillips. I'd happily take him. Manchester United are prepared to let Paul Pogba leave when his contract expires next summer and believe it is more beneficial keeping the 28-year-old till the end of the season and selling him in January. Baffling. 200 million they've poured into the Pogba experiment and they don't want to get any of it back. They don't even want to save seven and a half million by selling him a bit early. Paris Saint-Germain have joined the race for Rafinha, who plays the right-sided role, which is the role they play Messi in, so I'll say no. Liverpool are one of the clubs interested in signing Jude Bellingham. Bellingham, I would say, one of many. Barcelona have offered Xavi the job, but we know that. Uh, Mark Overmars will leave Ajax to become Newcastle's director of football in January or February. Um, I doubt it. Uh, Manchester United players turned on Solskjaer during a dressing room inquest. Cristiano Ronaldo has attempted to rally Manchester United's players and encourage teammates to support Oli. I can get on board with this. Good lad, Cristiano. You stand up for the man. He knows what he's doing. Took Ferguson seven years to win a title. Oli needs three more. Four more? Four more. Give him four more years. Uh, Newcastle are the scout watching Florian University. Newcastle can scout all they want. He won't go there. Uh, Borussia Dortmund are in contact with Chelsea over Callum Hudson-Odoi and Timo Werner and Christian Pulisic. I don't think Chelsea loan all three of them and Dortmund cannot buy any of them. Chelsea are looking at moves for 
Jules Kunde and Matthias Delict as they fear Christensen and Rudiger could leave. I, I would rather have uh, Kunde and Delict personally. Uh, Liverpool plan to use a signing on fee to help Mo Salah become their highest earner, but reports the Egypt Ford is asking for 500,000 a week is inaccurate. Um, give him whatever he wants. Give him whatever he wants. Michael Edwards is planning to leave his role as sporting director. This was announced weeks ago, and Football Insider has finally caught up. Uh, Fiorentina director Joe Barone, who sounds like a character from, like, I don't know, The Sopranos, um, says that him and Tony would sit down of a morning for a coffee and decide what they needed to do for the day. Um, Joe, Joe Barone. Brilliant. Um, has not ruled out some cops. <laughs> has not ruled out selling Serbia striker Dusan Vlavic in January with the 21-year-old unwilling to extend his deal. Don't know if the 70 million you're looking for in the summer will be there though. Barca have made initial inquiries for Monaco's Brazilian fullback Kev Henrique. Um, really? Really? Oh no. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. No, <laughs> you wouldn't sign him. <clears throat> Not if you've watched him play very often. Uh, we will leave it like that, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will see you on Monday. Enjoy yourselves and have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.